Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody, this is Dr. Rob, and as always, I'm really glad that you joined us. Let me remind you that there are many, many free resources on SeekingIntegrity.com, as well as uh, our treatment program, and that's how you find me, and I do a lot of free interactive stuff, so please come visit. I want to introduce and talk about a guest that I've been wanting to talk to a long time, and his name is Gary Seidler. And before I introduce Gary, let me tell you what our topic is today. Gary has a long history in working with and around adult children of alcoholics. And one of my interests and focuses, foci, if you will, is looking at the relationship between adult children of alcoholics and adult children of sex addicts. So we're going to talk a lot about that. I want to hear Gary's history on working and being involved with ACOA. And then we'll talk about the relationship between the two. I do want to put out one note to parents and folks who are listening who have children who of sex addicts. And I just want to say this clearly. Everyone has a different opinion. Everyone has a different belief. This is mine. Nobody wants to know about dad or mom's sex life. (laughs) If your children don't know, please tell them we're having a hard time. We're really struggling. We're working on our issues. Sorry, we've uh, not been as focused on you, whatever that is. If they know something's up, say absolutely. Yes, there is something going on, but you know, mom and dad are working on it. It doesn't, you know, age appropriate responses. But in my mind, I would never want my children to know about my actual concrete sexual life. It's not a place that children need or adult children need to go. The other thing I would say to you is if your children do know, I think that that can be a a difficult situation to, to navigate because you may have kids take sides, and I'm on mom's side, and I'm on dad's side, and if you're trying to reconcile, that can be difficult. And I I also think, you know, this is the time when you want to bring in uh, a child therapist or a family therapist to help guide you, uh, you know, if a kid is under 18 or even older, about how to negotiate what they've learned and how they've learned it. I've seen kids, you know, find stuff on computers and pads. I've seen moms or dads say, I'm so angry at your mom or dad. Let me tell you what they did. And you know, all of those issues can be problematic for kids when they find these things out. So I want to say that at the beginning, I will probably say that at the, at the end because of our topic. So Gary, thank you for being so patient. Let me say a little bit about Gary Seidler, who is a friend and uh, all open discussion. He has also been my publisher and helped me uh, do a lot of speaking and uh, conferences over the years. 
So Gary Seidler has been one of the foremost advocates of the addictions and a mental health field professional for the past 40 plus years. He's been a book and magazine publisher and a professional conference organizer. Gary began his career as a newspaper editor, a sp political speech writer uh, in the Toronto area, and then he created a trade newspaper, the U.S. Journal of Drug and Alcohol Dependence, which really became one of the first meaningful journals on the topic. Gary also began a, uh, a publishing company called HCI, and HCI, uh, along with him and his partner, published several national and international bestsellers, including Adult Children of Alcoholics, Healing the Shame that Binds You, A Child Called It, and um, most importantly, in terms of popularity, Gary was deeply involved with the publication of the whole Chicken Soup for the Soul series, which if you haven't heard about it, uh, you probably haven't been on the planet uh, for very long. He's also co-authored co some of the Chicken Soup books, a book called Success from the Heart, the Heart Reconnection Guidebook. He's done a tremendous amount of work in the field of people reaching people whether that is people reaching people through writing or people reaching people through speaking at conferences. He has brought us professionals to you, as I do, uh, in a way that you get to learn. Uh, Gary lives in Santa Monica. He is most proud, as he should be, of his three adult children and three awesome grandchildren. Welcome, Gary Seidler. Well, thank you for that. And it's lovely to be here with you, Bob. You know, that took a whole big breath to say all of that. You have had quite the history. And, um, you know, I like saying that you have, like me, been someone who has brought forward the issues of addiction uh, into the public consciousness. And I guess before we talk about children or adult children, tell me, you know, how did that evolve? How have you seen the field evolve from your first journal to books and conferences? And can you just say a little bit about how all of that rolled out? Sure. I think most importantly, um, and I really appreciate the, the way you frame the introduction, because in no way am I a, quote, expert uh, in any of these issues. Uh, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a counselor. Uh, but I've been actively involved in the field for close to 50 years now. So the first time I heard the term children of alcoholics, was actually in 1969, I joined the, a government agency in Toronto by the name of the Addiction Research Foundation, a very large government organization that was looking into the research and educational uh, aspects of working with alcoholism. And uh, I was a young executive at that time and did start, as you mentioned, a newspaper called, at that time, the Journal of the Addiction Research Foundation. Well, next to my office was uh, an elderly social worker by the name of Margaret Cork. And it turned out that she had young children visiting her after hours for a study that she was doing which was then turned into a book called The Forgotten Children. Now, that book came out in 1969, if you can imagine, that far back. Well, I would think, Gary, you were, you know, in your diapers in 1969, but... I was in my shorts. I was in my shorts. I was in my, <laughs> was in my mid... mid uh, 20s. So I got to know this lovely lady and I got to see these young kids coming in to visit with her. 
And it turned out that those children became the source of, there were 100, 100 plus kids, and they formed the study that became The Forgotten Children. So that was a book that was published, you know, back in 1969. I wonder, Gary, just before we move on, what, can you say briefly, what, what made you take a personal interest in this? You know, you could have listened to this woman and saying, oh, isn't that interesting? She's doing this. And I'm not asking you to disclose your history, but what caught your ear about this particular topic, if you can briefly tell us that? You know, I, I can't claim that I had any specific uh, interest. What What was interesting to me, of course, I was right next door to this lady. I had my office right next door. And these young kids, uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, were coming in to see her after hours. So I was extremely curious, like, what are these young kids doing in the building? So that was really, uh, you know, more perked my curiosity rather than the topic. But what I'd like to say is in 1981, okay, let's fast forward uh, to 1981. This is what, 13 years later. I'm, I have now moved to Miami to start a publishing company under the name Health Communications and U.S. Journal of Drug and Alcohol Dependence, which uh, later became U.S. Journal Training. So my partner and I set off for Florida, 1977, and in 1981, we were just you know barely uh, paying the rent. Uh, I went to a conference in Seattle that was a National Council on Alcoholism conference, 1981 in Seattle. And at the luggage carousel, I met a woman by the name of Janet Woiditz. Now, I've heard that name before. In fact, I seem to remember, honestly, back in when I was in training, which is, you know, feels like a century ago, but in the late 80s, I, I, early 90s, I remember, I think I had a book of hers in my trunk. I, I think it was, was it called Adult Children of Alcoholics? Or maybe she had a couple of books that came out. It absolutely was. And so I met her in 81 at the luggage carousel. Her, her bags didn't arrive. My bags didn't arrive. So we met each other at the uh, baggage claim office. Uh, we shared a taxi together to the conference because obviously she was going to the same conference as was I. And she told me about the dissertation that she had just finished for her PhD called Adult Children of Alcoholics. And my ears picked up. Why? Because I remembered 15 years earlier, the forgotten children. So that's really how that connection came about. So I was, you know, extremely curious at that point. And we talked and got to know each other a little bit. And it turned out she gave me a copy of her dissertation to read. I read it. I came back to my, Florida. My partner read it. And we both identified with the common characteristics that Janet described in that early work. And that resulted in us publishing Adult Children of Alcoholics by Janet Whitez, with which you and approximately 8 million other people purchased over the next years. Well, Gary, I want to take you back just a minute. You, you mentioned that you and your partner recognized some of the 
sort of symptoms, if you will, of adult children of alcoholics. And I just wonder, we don't have to go through every one or we, you know, we're not doing comprehensive lists here. People can look it up on AI or on Google, but can you just give me a couple of the, couple of the symptoms, if you will, that you noticed that kind of stuck out for you? Now, when I say that I identified, it was interesting because neither of my parents were alcoholics. So it was a surprise to me that I identified at all. But what I realized is that my, both my grandfathers, I identified as, you know, fitting these common characteristics. So let me tell you what some of them were or are. ACOA's guess at what normal behavior is. ACOAs have difficulty following projects from beginning to end. They would just as easily lie as tell the truth. They judge themselves without mercy. Um, They have great difficulty having fun. They take themselves very seriously. Do they struggle with relationships? Absolutely. And that's the big one. Uh, They have great difficulty with anything intimate relationships. Now, I want to stop you for a second, because as you describe these characteristics, I got to say, they sound like every addict I've ever met, which is lies a lot, keeps secrets, have difficulty having fun, take themselves very seriously, living with a lot of shame, you know, those kinds of things. So I'm getting that there's a lot of similarity between someone who's an addict or an alcoholic and grew up with one. But but what is different between an adult children of an alcoholic and the addict themselves or the alcoholic? Actually, very, very little. Uh, and you've picked up on you know, such an important part of the evolution of the ACOA movement, because what we soon realized with the now the attention and the emphasis on adult children and the family is we then realized that these characteristics were not just relating to alcoholic parents, but they were relating to any form of dysfunctional family background. And that's why you related. Exactly. Exactly. And that's how the field grew. It was the realization. Somebody by the name of John Bradshaw, who I'm sure is a familiar name to many of your audience uh, members, John Bradshaw was the one that popularized the idea of dysfunctional families. And when you say he popularized the idea, what you mean is he brought to the public consciousness the idea that that the dysfunction isn't just in the person who's the addict or the alcoholic, that it spreads out to the entire family. Correct. Is that what you're saying? That's, right. exa- okay. that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. So, you know, when we get to talk about uh, perhaps later, you know, the specific similarities and differences between ACOAs and adult children of sex addicts, I think we'll find that many are the same, but there are some notable differences. So when we, you know, focus on that part later, we can we can get into that. Yeah, and folks, I wanted to tell you, in case I wasn't clear, that what I wanted uh, Gary to do was really start out talking about the adult children alcoholics movement and those issues, because, of course, we're going to be looking at adult children of sex addicts, which is a much more uh, much more recent. Uh, it's almost like you're repeating your history, Gary. It's much more recent uh, population to be looking at, and yet they also share a lot of the same characteristics. But anyway, I, I regressed. You were talking about John Bradshaw and the beginnings of the field and how it just sort of exploded, I guess. It did. 
after Janet's book, uh, Janet Wojtyk's book, um, you know, it became a New York Times bestseller two years after we published it. Now, I mentioned we had no sales force. The book didn't appear in any bookstore. So how could a no-name publisher in Miami, Florida, produce a New York Times bestseller? And it was number one. By the way, I want to say that there was no internet. It (laughs) wasn't like people were putting something up online and saying, oh, look at that book. There was no Amazon for you younger folks. None of that existed. Exactly. I sort of remember that. So you're talking about word of mouth. Which are the strictly word of mouth. And around Around that time, for two years or so, ACOA groups, 12-step ACOA groups, started to form uh, all over the country. Uh, it came actually out of Al-Anon. You know, out of the Al-Anon program, the ACOA groups, 12-step groups, started to form. And let me ask you that. What, what was the need for ACOA, for adult children and alcoholics, meetings or program? Now, I know every every addict wants a program. We've got meth programs. We've got marijuana programs. We've got coke programs. Every drug addict wants their own thing. And I, I do understand that because sex addicts and porn addicts have their own differentiated places. But why didn't the adult children of alcoholics just go to Al-Anon? I mean, it was really for that kind of purpose, wasn't it? What was the difference? Well, Al-Anon existed for that purpose, but I don't think a lot of spouses uh, of alcoholics found Al-Anon in those days. You know, it was still a relatively, you know, small uh, movement, certainly nothing like AA. So it really, you know, required, you know, its own tribe, if you will, because, you know, we started doing conferences around adult children of alcoholics, dozens of them all over the country for professionals in the field. Now, when I say professionals, I'm talking mostly about counselors, you know, beginning psychologists, and they came to these conferences, not just for professional training and professional learning, but as adult children themselves. So it's like they found each other. They found their tribe. And there was such a fervor in those days at these conferences, four, five, six, seven hundred people, you know, coming together. Uh, We started publishing, you know, a ton of books. I mean, literally scores of books around dysfunctional families, uh, what later became codependency, which I know we're going to talk about also, and dysfunctional families generally. And I remember at our book table, I mean, people standing four deep, you know, literally throwing cash at us. Now, and I want to explain to folks just very quickly, uh, when Gary says put on conferences, I believe what, and you can correct me, Gary, but I'm pretty sure what this organization that was publishing books did is say, you know what, these books are selling well, and I think people want to hear about this and learn about this. And so when he says put on conferences, he started doing events all over the country with the organization that was the publisher. And first a few therapists, and then a bunch of therapists, and all of a sudden, and I don't think there were a lot of conferences for therapists back then. So when I say put on, or when he says put on, I mean, he was literally creating a whole field that had, you know, conferences used to be pretty sniffy. You know, you had some doctors, a few psychologists who spoke a language that none of us understood. And I think Gary was one of the people who really said, no, there are just plain old folks and regular old therapists who just need to understand this in a kind of day-to-day language. And so I just want to explain what he means by putting on conferences. They created a whole world for us therapists and regular folks, too, to begin to understand these complex issues that, 
they weren't on TV, they weren't on the radio. There was well, yeah, and again, I want to thank you, Rob, for you know putting it in that context because this is what you know when I look back at my career in terms of publishing and conferencing, this these are the days I'm most proud of because you know people really were you know seeing things for the very first time about their upbringing and how their upbringing really affected their behavioral difficulties, certainly with relationships. And, you know, it really was a very, very exciting time and a very exciting place to, you know, see this incredible awareness that was taking place. And like you say, you know, conferences were very staid in those days, uh, very, quote, professional. And here we were, you know, people who, you know, I mean, they didn't go to bed at night. They would just, you know, talk and talk and talk and really develop, you know, in some cases, you know, lifelong friendships. So these were pretty heady days. And, uh, you know, I think opened up, uh, you know, the field to not just looking at the addict and, you know, the one that, but realizing that addiction is really a family affair. For every addict, there are, you know, two, three, four, five people who are, you know, deeply affected one way or another, both personally and in the workplace. And I want to stop you for one second and say, you know, when when Gary talks about codependency, and maybe we'll talk about later, he really is talking about what he just said, which is families are affected by this. And that's, you know, what I really believe is that they don't necessarily go into these family situations and help support the addiction. Their issues are being affected by the alcoholic drug addict is just someone they love. And they start adapting the dysfunction in order to keep the love and the connection going. But Gary, in those days, codependency, all of that. But I'm really curious. I know that you publish a lot of people who are either becoming famous or have become famous. You mentioned John Bradshaw. Who else was? Uh, did you find and say, let's get them out there? The short list would include uh, Sharon Wakeshider, later Sharon Wakeshider Cruz. Very, very prolific in terms of family uh, family treatment. Claudia Black would certainly be another one. She had one of the very early books, It Will Never Happen to Me, which became and still is, you know, a major bestseller. Melody Beattie, of course, uh, Codependent No More. Uh, I mean, that became a classic. John Bradshaw, I mentioned. And Bradshaw, yeah. You know, and Bradshaw's had several books, but Healing the Shame That Binds You uh, was the one we published and really had enormous impact, as did his later work on uh, The Inner Child. Mm-hmm. By the way, why I, you know, we are not here to talk about history. That's not what the show is about. But on the other hand, this did come from somewhere. You know, Sex Addiction with Pat Carnes and later me and the adult children movement with Janet and then later Claudia. And, oh, well, ooh, I'm on first name basis with these people. I love that. So move me along a little bit in the 90s. And guys, by the way, you may not be interested in these times, but I remember being around and reading these books and thinking, oh, my God, I relate to this. And look what they have to say and sort of building my work on it. But I think by the 90s, we were really looking at Est and Lifespring and all this sort of self-awareness, the whole movement of people wanting to understand what their history is about and how they'd related to what they'd grown up with. 
and not just we're we're not just talking about Sigmund Freud in very traditional ways. And, and Gary, I got to say this too because I love talking about this, and it may be very, very boring to other people. But when you say conferences were staid and uninteresting, I remember sitting in rooms at conferences, and someone would pick up their book. And they would sit there and read from their book for an hour and a half. And then they'd take a few questions and they would leave. There was no real sense of connection to the people they were engaging. And I think that's what you found in some of us was people who could relate. hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, speakers, you know, would be, you know, they'd give their talk for an hour, hour and a half, and then they, they would be besieged. I mean, really, 30, 40, 50 people would be surrounding them, you know, to ask more questions and personal questions and take photos. Uh, I mean, it was really relating to people in a way that professionals, you know, didn't relate to people and such a difference, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, the human quality. Well, I don't think that's changed, you know, with COVID and all that, I thought, well, that's the end of conferences. People aren't going to want to, but you will find folks looking out there, both in the professional and the general public that people, hundreds of people do want to come listen to folks. And I think it's also about connecting. It's about us coming together and enjoying each other, not just simply about going to those those talks. But anyway, I want to move forward because we're probably boring people tremendously. I could talk all day about this. But one of the things that we didn't mention when we were talking about Gary's grandparents is one of them is a Holocaust survivor. Right. And I think the kind of dysfunction and alcoholism, you know, it comes out of, for some people, that kind of lived trauma. But um, addiction and family addiction is passed on generationally. It doesn't just stop with the person who's had the dysfunction. And by the way, folks, that is why we're talking about adult children of addicts because it isn't just how it happened in in this coupleship and it's over. It's repeated with our kids and our grandkids. And, you know, that is one of the most important things to me about recovery is I put my stick in the ground and I say, or my spear in the ground, I say, no more. I am not going to carry on this legacy to my children. And I think that kind of idea is what was percolating at that time. But Gary, um, you were going to say, and I asked you earlier, but I really want to get clear. You didn't have, you had alcoholic grandparents. What was it that you actually related to, or how did you get involved personally in this whole thing? I, I haven't quite figured out the answer to that question, but what happened is I was a young newspaper reporter, loved being a young journalist. I was in my twenties. This was in Canada. And uh, my newspaper career came to an end very abruptly when I editorially didn't support the... You got political. ...the candidate that uh, my publisher would have preferred. So uh, I was very indignant, and I quit newspapers. And uh, I was basically out of work at 27, had no idea what my next move was going to be. And I saw an ad in the Toronto newspaper for a press officer, information officer for this, you know, government agency called the Alcoholism and Drug Addiction Research Foundation of Ontario. And I thought to myself, oh, that sounds interesting. I know nothing about alcohol other than the fact that I drank a lot. I knew nothing about drugs except I experimented with drugs a lot. And I thought that sounded kind of cool. So I applied for this job. They wanted a PhD minimum in terms of educational requirements. I dropped out of high school when I was a kid in London uh, before emigrating to Canada at 16 years old. So I didn't exactly qualify for the position, but somehow I bullshitted my way into the position. I joined the Addiction Research Foundation. 
the senior staff were all MDs, PhDs, and they sat around every week pontificating about, you know, different aspects of uh, the addictions world. I had no idea what they were talking about, but I learned to translate, to understand, and then translate what they were talking about in with their lofty terms to uh, the public of Ontario by writing press releases and being a spokesman and so forth. So that's really how I got into it. But it wasn't really until many years later that I got to really work on my own recovery issues. Uh, I think at some point I started to read the books that I published and, uh, you know, started to really realize, hmm, you know, although I was not a child of an alcoholic, I did hear stories about, you know, my grandfather who died of uh, liver cirrhosis uh, at 45 years old after, you know, producing uh, seven children, my mother being one of them. And I do remember, you know, my mother being bipolar. And I do remember hearing about my mother having affairs. And I do remember hearing about family secrets. And I do, and on and on and on. And so all of a sudden, I identified. And I want to stop here for one second. And I want to tell you guys, you know, one of the reasons I really love Gary, and we are friends, is I had a bipolar mother. My mother had affairs. There were secrets in our family. My grandfather was mentally ill. Um, when you understand, I think, why some of us join and become friends, there's a resonance in our histories that may not even be what we do, but it, we feel the, the history that brings us to the moment. So I want to tell all of you, you know, I relate to this man. It's one of the reasons I wanted him to be here. But anyway, please keep going. Yeah, so, you know, uh, so all of these things, you know, start, started to become part of my, my own self-awareness journey. And I got into recovery myself. Uh, I went to a well-known treatment program in Arizona at one point. Uh, and what I want to say about that, I think is so important in terms of recovery, is, you know, when people go to rehab, you know, I think there's a tendency to think, okay, they're, they're going in recovery, they're going into treatment, you know, they're going to be fine now. To me, you know, going into rehab is the beginning of the recovery journey, not the end. Um, so I, I think that's very important to say. And I appreciate your saying that because it's seeking integrity. You know, a lot of spouses, a lot of family members, you know, you don't know a lot about this process. And you think we have a magic wand. I really hear that. And we wave it over them and we're working with them. And then they come home, you know, poof. And really the rubber hits the road when those lessons and that experience comes back into your life and you have to practice it. So I really appreciate that perspective because no, we don't, we don't, it, it, addiction is something that is chronic and you keep it in remission uh, like cancer in that way. It's not something that just gets cured. And I really appreciate your mentioning that. So you were talking about your own recovery. Yes. And, you know, so I, I, I went into treatment. That was certainly, um, you know, a very, very huge, you know, milestone in terms of my own journey. Uh, but like I said, that was the beginning of the journey. You know, after that, I joined a men's group. I'd moved to Los Angeles at that point. Uh, the men's group I, I was uh, involved with uh, for at least 12 years up until fairly recently. You know, I uh, went to meetings, you know, I, w I was in the 12-step recovery program for a good while. 
Well, you know, let me ask you something about all of that. Yeah. You know, you said you recognized uh, things that you needed to work on. And, you know, I guess I'm wondering, uh, without going into the details, you know, what what did you hear about yourself? You know, I know that, you know, everyone partied a little bit back then. There were lots of drugs. Um, but what what kinds of things did you start to say, oh, oh, I have that. Oh, I do that. And, you know, certainly drugs and alcohol are part of it. But what else? Did you have good marriages? Did you have good relations? You know, what else was playing out for you? Well, the, the, the two areas, actually three, three areas that I would identify. One was it was very clear to me uh, when I became self-aware that I was a womanizer. That uh, uh, What does that word mean? I'm not sure. Let's see. I haven't heard that one in a while. What would you call that? I th- well, I, don't, I, I think you, you, you could describe it a lot, whole lot better than I can. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, Women were were front and center in my, in my life, you know, ever since I knew the difference between males and females. I had a grandfather. Now, this is an interesting piece that I didn't even think about until relatively recently. I had one grandfather who was a fabulous guy. I absolutely adored him. This was in London. He was a, he was a child of, a, of the Holocaust. Uh, he was a, a gambler. He loved to flirt with uh, with the girls, uh, and I remember very clearly at 14 years old, he took me to the West End of London, kind of downtown, and introduced me to a waitress half his age who he clearly had had a, a dalliance with, and he was so proud you know, to introduce me as a 14-year-old grandson. Uh, he was so proud to show off that he was, you know, having a relationship uh, with this attractive young waitress. But you also loved your grandmother, and you probably understood that this wasn't something you were going to go home and tell grandma about. I understood that instinctively, but but at the same time, he was my hero. I looked at that behavior and I thought, hmm, that's kind of cool. You know, that that was kind of cool. And I emulated that. So I was very much, uh, you know, swayed by sex, drugs and rock and roll. And in what other ways you mentioned womanizing? What what other things did you witness or find that you would carry forward? You mentioned gambling, for example. Gambling was a big one. Yeah. Um, I was exposed to it as a very young guy. Uh, I mentioned the story of my grandfather, but the fathers and uncles of friends of mine, uh, you know, used to play cards upstairs in the bowling alley after hours. And I used to sort of hang around and, you know, uh, get their drinks for them and started to make side bets. So, you know, I was exposed to gambling at a young age. Movies. I remember a couple of movies in those days, you know, that depicted gambling. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I I uh, gravitated towards that. I even gravitated to the newspaper reporter, you know, who smoked and and who drank and who had a girl on his arm. And you know, these these were very attractive images to me at that time. So you know, it may not have been a, a, somehow a mistake that I became a newspaper reporter. But it didn't occur to me until many, many years later, until I got into some form of recovery that, you know, I was, you know, I was a poster child uh, as an adult child 
You know, so that was the gambling piece. Uh, alcohol and drugs were in there. Uh, alcohol was never my thing in the sense that I could take it or leave it. But when I discovered marijuana, I, that was my love affair. That was my drug love affair. I loved the way it made me feel. Uh, and I became truly an addict of uh, cannabis. Uh, and I still regard myself as an To this day, I know that you have to stay away from it. Yeah. And, and, and I think at this point, it's worth, you know, reminding everybody, I'm sure most of your listeners know this, but I think it's, it's never enough times to remind people, you know, what is an addict? I mean, I, I have to say that to myself, what do I mean? You know, I'm an addict of, of cannabis at, you know, 79 years old and I don't smoke anymore. What do I mean that I'm still an addict? What I mean is that you can't control the use uh, despite adverse consequences. Yeah, I've heard you say that that um, years and years later, if you're around someone who, or actually I've heard you say, I go down to uh, the beach here in LA and I, I sniff all of the people walking around with marijuana just to have a memory. I mean, it never sort of leaves you in that sense. And I think that's what we're talking about, the chronic piece of it. Yes. The, the flavor, the feeling never leaves you once it's started. Exactly. Exactly. Let me ask you this. A number of times you've mentioned I got into recovery, started to become self-aware. Um, so can you just briefly give us a couple of pieces of that? Like the way I looked in the world changed in this way. The world, way I looked in the world changed in that way. What did you pick up along the way to become, if you will, conscious or aware? I mean, what is recovery for you, really? It isn't just stopping the substance or stopping the spending. What is recovery for you? Okay, I, I, I think it's becoming less selfish. I think that to me is, is sort of the big one. I think the one of the first things I came across in 12-step recovery is that alcoholism or addiction is a, a disease of, of selfishness. It's all about me. It's all about me, exactly. And it took me a long, long, long time, I'm talking decades, you know, to really get that. So I think that recovery today uh, at 79 and having three, grand, you know, young grandchildren is becoming, you know, not so selfish and realizing that it's not all about me. It's now about legacy. It's about, you know, who I want to be for the next however many years how I want to be remembered by my grandchildren. I mean, do I really want to be remembered as a druggie, a womanizer, a junkie? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't think so. I'd like to be, you know, remembered as, uh, you know, somebody that sweet, like, adoring grandpa that we all wanted to have. That's it. Which you wouldn't have been. And by the way, folks, I, I, for the spouses who are listening, I really want you to hear this, is that I get so many of you who reach out and say, and I'll say this in a not particularly polite way, well, he or she has stopped having sex with all these people. He or she isn't using anymore, but they're still a jerk. They're still an asshole. They're still, why? They're going to recover. They stopped doing all this stuff. They're not acting out. How come they're not better people? And I don't think that's, it isn't that the, the being better people, it's in us. But as Gary said, to turn away from the self and turn toward others, that is a that is a long-term journey. That's not how we grew up. That's not how we survived. That's not our addictions about. And even when all of that stabilizes, we are still focused on me, 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 me. Exactly. 
Exactly. And, you know, I, I think the other thing that obviously needs to be said, but maybe not so obvious, is, uh, is service, you know, to, to be of service, however, whenever, uh, with whomever, but to really, you know, turn outward and, and be of service, help. God knows, you know, we all need help. And, uh, you know, if, if we picked up or if I picked up, you know, some wisdom along the way, I feel like today it's more my responsibility, you know, to share whatever I can that helps. Mm-hmm. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.